From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. That stems from the first 12 months at this service bureau back in 1990. Uh, one thing that happened was 3D Systems put out an advertisement, a print ad, and the title was Overnight Prototypes. And that got a lot of attention, got a lot of inbound phone calls looking for our services. The problem was overnight was nearly impossible back then. Seven days was more likely a lead time. And that's because we could spend a day or more setting up a build and slicing it. And then routinely your jobs failed. Then you had post-processing on the back end. So is one where the expectation was set artificially high. And then I paid the price by having to tell people, no, you can't have it for a week. And you know, them being turned off or them being angry. But the other ones, that was 3D systems. And that's not bad on 3D systems. It's just, you know, it was marketing and it was a nice move. It just didn't play. Uh, it didn't play as I would like to see it play. That was Todd Grimm. Todd is a 29-year veteran of the additive manufacturing industry. Todd is president of TA Grimm and Associates, an additive manufacturing consulting and communications company. From his work as a consultant, writer, author, speaker, editor, and advisor, he was named one of the TCT Magazine's 20 most influential in the additive manufacturing industry and has been twice nominated for the TCT Hall of Fame. Todd joins the show to talk about his how he got his start in 3D printing and the evolution of the technology over the past 30 years. All right, Todd, welcome to the show. Do you just want to start by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into the additive space? Sure, I'd be happy to, Mike. And by the way, thanks for having me on your program. I really appreciate it. Uh, so where I am now, I, I operate as a consultant and do some communications in the additive space, and I have been doing that for 30 years. Uh, how I got to where I'm at is all I knew a guy and a little bit of happenstance or karma. And if you don't mind, I'd love to share the story because uh, it's kind of interesting that, you know, opportunities present themselves at the right time or sometimes the wrong time. But I was actually like a mechanical engineer, graduated Purdue University, didn't want to do engineering. So I went into CAD cam back in the eighties and was in CAD CAM, I was stumbling on these articles about this fantastic technology called stereolithography. It really caught my attention, gee whiz kind of stuff. So I read everything that I could that appeared in media. And late 1990, it would have been, of all things, I'm reading a sales magazine called Success. And in the sales magazine, there's a one column article titled The Kinkos of Prototyping. That caught my attention. First paragraph, it named stereolithography. I'm hooked. Here's where the happenstance, and I knew a guy comes in. The second paragraph states that this service bureau was located in Denville, New Jersey, which was 10 miles from where I lived. Also in the second paragraph, they named one of the co-founders as being my former sales manager. So I thought that was fantastic. He's doing something interesting, new, pushing boundaries. And I called him up. His name is Bill Coleman. I called Bill up with no intent, no agenda. I just wanted to congratulate him on doing something really, really cool. And we talked. And in the end, he ended up offering me a job, which the happenstance side of things is my life 
situation had changed. Yeah, I was newly single, so I didn't have anybody depending on me. And that gave me the opportunity to take the job in the service bureau uh, at a 75% pay cut. So it was all hopes and dreams of the future and trying something new. And, and with that, I was lucky to get in because this company was called Laser Prototypes Incorporated was actually the third service bureau in the world to be founded, you know, using the technology back end called it rapid prototyping. So that's how I got in. And since 1990, when I joined them, 99% uh, of my time has been dedicated to additive. Just like 1% went into some 3D scanning for a while. I thought I could um, consult on both technologies, but that proved not to be possible. So, so that's how I got in, Mike. And that's also a lot of those early days is what forged my personality, my style, uh, my beliefs. And what would you say that your biggest belief is in the industry? What's your kind of principal thesis that you operate on? Principal thesis. I, so my style is one. I've got a reputation of being what I call enthusiastically realistic which means that I believe in the technology, I support it, I want to see it grow, I want to see it do fantastic things. But at the same time, I take a pragmatic approach to looking at where it is now or where it'll be near term and try to convey that aspect of the story. And that stems from the first 12 months at this service bureau back in 1990. Uh, one thing that happened was 3D Systems put out an advertisement, a print ad, and the title was Overnight Prototypes. And that got a lot of attention, got a lot of inbound phone calls looking for our services. The problem was overnight was nearly impossible back in. Seven days was more likely a lead time. And that's because we could spend a day or more setting up a build and slicing it. And then routinely your jobs failed. Then you had post-processing on the back end. So is one where the expectation was set artificially high. And then I paid the price by having to tell people, no, you can't have it for a week. And, you know, them being turned off or them being angry. But the other ones, so that was 3D systems. And that's not bad on 3D systems. It's just, you know, it was marketing and it was a nice move. It just didn't play. Uh, it didn't play as I would like to see it play. But the other one I'm guilty of, uh, back in 1991, we being the industry, we're making a lot of big, bold claims that CNC machining and injection molding, you better watch your back because we're going to come and take all your business. And, you know, here we are in 2020. It's still not true. And I think if you talk to anybody who really knows the industry, they'll tell you that it's unlikely we're going to displace traditional technologies outright and across the board. But that experience was one where by making those claims, all we did was further elevate expectations from people. And this is a time when the parts that came off of stereolithography were so brittle that if you sneezed on them, pieces would fall off. Uh, but what it really did was, in my mind, uh, machining and injection molding had become comfortable in how they did things and lead times and all that. I feel that we poked a sleeping bear woke it up and it said, whoa, wait, we've got some competition here. We need to start doing things differently. And on the heels of that, we see things like high-speed machining. We see better cam tools to expedite the front-end process. We see people coming up with a fast-turn, short-run uh, prototype tooling for injection molding. So uh, 
we we telegraphed way too early that we could be a competitive uh, force, and it it entrenched uh, reinforced the competition that we're fighting against. Which I let me clarify, Mike. I don't view CNC machining and injection molding as competitive anymore. Uh, they're uh, complementary to what additive can do. Sure. So two questions or two threads. I want to pull on, on that a little bit. The, the first one kind of starting at a service bureau in 1990s, you would expect that I mean, it's 2020 today. How much has the life of a service bureau or kind of their existence changed in that time? I mean, from my perspective, I mean, fundamentally there, the business nut model kind of remains the same. You're getting parts in the technologies and materials may have changed a little bit. The, Lead time is certainly a bit faster, but has there been a lot of fundamental changes in, in that space? No, I agree with you. Fundamentally, the model has not changed. I think the key things that have developed or evolved is with accessibility to lower cost devices. It's forced service bureaus to go um, upstream with, re with respects to more demanding applications. So gone are the days of turning to a service bureau for a simple mock-up yeah, in general, not across the board. Uh, gone are the days of simple prototypes. And a lot of functional prototyping has gone by the wayside, at least first cut. So it's the service bureaus that now pick up uh, the ball to transact additive manufacturing when much more than the basics are needed. So that can be post-processing. So that can be uh, being able to paint parts and with color matching, it can be, you know, advanced concepts. It can be adding design for additive manufacturing intelligence into the uh, process that you're providing a supplier. And then you know, most notably over the last couple of years with all the conversation about using additive for production, uh, encouraging service bureaus to seek to become contract manufacturers instead of prototype houses. Right. And I think, to your earlier point, I think one of the things that I always wrestle with about the industry is there's this balance of, you said, the practicality with the hype. And I always kind of go back and forth on the, where's that line, right? Like if you're a new manufacturer of machine or a material that you want to get out into the world, you have to sell it a little bit. And but you can't, you have to sell it enough to convince someone to use it. But at the same time, if they use it, it's got to work to some degree or show progress. So where you've seen probably an extreme where something has been oversold, like where's, where's that line and how do you judge from, from where you're sitting? What's, what's real and maybe a little bit circumspect. Yeah. Um, I agree with what you said. Uh, I, I think the line falls along a theme of how egregious is the hyperbole they're offering. And over the last 30 years, I think the most notable that comes to my mind, um, had thought of this before we jumped on this uh, conversation, but is those that want you to believe that their technology is good for all applications when inherently it's not. So they're maybe desperate for funds to come in through sales or they want to try to grow their uh, their reach, but they position it as a solution for an application that it's really bad at. And I don't know we're seeing as much of that today, but 
Uh, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we saw a lot of it. It's like um, Z Corporation, which got acquired by 3D Systems, uh, which is a binder jetting process with not the smoothest surfaces. You need to infiltrate uh, to get rid of the porosity, but it was trying to position itself as a tooling solution. So making patterns or making molds. So patterns for rubber molding, making molds to use directly. And it could, but it wasn't a strong use case. And what was the other one? Oh, this goes way back. So I'm not going to offend anybody. A technology called LOM, Laminated Object Manufacturing, which was butcher paper laid down and adhesed to the previous layer, and then you cut the profile. So when you're done with your print job, you've got a block of uh, butcher paper that you got to peel away to reveal your part. Well, it was fantastic for uh, the foundries who were really used to wood patterns. But for some reason, they decided that there was more to this industry that they could satisfy. And they actually started selling it as a solution to prototype injection molded parts. And it didn't have any of the characteristics of plastic. It was weak. If you didn't coat it, it would absorb moisture and expand. So uh, it was just a really bad way to go. So I think it's an, you need marketing and you need to, as a new company, new technology, you got to find your way into where your justification, your, your use cases are. So I agree that you've got to cast the net a little bit wide, but if you do that intentionally and out of desperation or other motivating factors, you push that message beyond what is realistic for anyone. That's where I think we get into trouble. Right. And kind of continuing on your career story. So have you, you spent time at, at a service bureau and then the last several years you've kind of been out on your own running your own business what's it been like running a small company uh it's it's been interesting so i've actually been running my own business mike for 20 years uh 18 years now i started ta grim and associates back in 2002 and you know like anything in this world there's good and bad you know, and the grass is always greener on the other side you know the key thing that i enjoy about being my own business is the control and flexibility I have. So deciding what I'm going to do today, what projects I take on. Uh, I, you know, I, I control my own destiny with respect to that aspect versus being told by someone that here's what you're going to do and here's your deadline. But on the other side of that, the biggest negative is the uncertainty on finances. You know, I, if I'm not if I'm not working on a project or selling to find other projects, I've got no income. And let me clarify this, Mike, because if you're going to be an entrepreneur and plan on building out a business with employees, it's a different set of considerations. I never wanted to build this into a, a corporation with lots of employees. I'm really happy to have myself as the only consultant and therefore my available time is the bandwidth limiter because I don't want to manage employees and I don't want to worry about payrolls. So keep in mind that this conversation is related to a one man band operation, but love that I got control. Same time. Don't like that. Uh, financial security is not there. And, you know, and Mike to take that another step. Uh, if I step out to a trade show, that is unpaid time. No one's paying for my uh, pay me income while I'm there. So if I head off to TCT um, 
TCT show in Europe or form next in Europe, that week of getting there and spending time on the show floor means I've got no income. So it's, it becomes hard to justify those. Uh, but on the, the converse side, so I have financial uncertainty, but in bad times like right now, one thing that makes me um, have a sigh of relief is I will not be blindsided with a notification that we're going to furlough 20% of the employees and then sitting on the hot seat wondering if I'm going to be one of the 20%. I'm the boss. I make the decisions. It'll come down to whether I can keep this business afloat and have an income that I uh, can live with. But I'm really happy that I'm not employed by somebody else who could decide tomorrow that I'm unnecessary. So, For sure. And um, that goes a lot in, in my ears with, with some of my experience. So one thing that I'm, I've been curious to ask you, and, and I struggled this, with this as I started my business a, a while back, is how do you, as a one-man band, kind of separate you from the business and not take things personally when a company says, hey, we don't want to work with you or um, we're going to go with, with this other entity. That was something that was really challenging for me when I first started. And because it's, for me, it was hard to separate. I'm the business, but the business is me and like it's separate, but on paper. And well, how do you manage that? Well, it, I like your question about separation, me from the business, but I don't have a problem with what you've struggled with. My problem is more of a time one. My, based on my personality, my separation of personal life and business life is non-existent. So I find that I put myself on the clock seven days a week, four weeks out of the month, 12 months out of the year. And that means slotting work on Saturdays and Sundays and working late. So that's my biggest problem with separation. On the being rejected feeling, um, my personality, the way I've set things up, it that doesn't bother me because anyone that reaches out to me to see if I'm the guy um, for their project, I tell them outright, I make this statement that I, you know, we've gone through it. You understand what I'm about. Please make the decision that's best for your company and don't worry about any time I've invested in you. So I almost remove the sting of what you're talking about by telling them that it's okay to not accept me. And I don't know if that's a sales tactic or if it's a ego preservation tactic, but that works for me. Yeah. I just remember kind of when I started early on, that was my, uh, my biggest challenge, but uh, that's, that's an interesting approach. I like that. Uh, Well, you know, if I can related to that and something that would encourage everyone to, Uh, consider or act on is, you know, early years as a consultant and one who's supposed to know the additive manufacturing industry, one big issue I'd have is embarrassment because I didn't have the answer. I, I, I put an unofficial or a inappropriate pressure on myself to know everything about everything. And I guess you'll agree, Mike, it's impossible to know everything about everything in additive and, uh, it, it's a horrible goal. So over the years, I've been comfortable with uh, taking the position of, you know, I don't know, but if you want, we can try to find the answer. But with that, the reason I brought it up is uh, for those bringing people on or hiring consultants, 
And oh, your your previous uh, speaker on the last podcast, Shannon Van Duren, said it that that's her style of saying I don't know, and it's a great style because the word of warning is someone who's engaging an individual as an employee or as a contractor. If you get the sense that they're going to act like they know everything, that they have all the answers, run, divorce yourself of them immediately. And I don't care if it's a high, high, a high priced employee or someone in the middle of a project, because I really believe that the people that act like they're that, that behave as a know-it-all are really putting your company in jeopardy. And conversely, if you're looking for a job or looking to get into contract or consulting kind of work, I really think it's um, uh, ill-advised to act like you're the know-it-all because you'll, you'll quickly be proved that you don't know it all. And the more you try to uh, fraudulently convince people that you know it all, the more likely it is you're going to mislead them and they're going to make some bad decisions or have some uh, bad initiatives. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I mean, it has very similar parallels to what we were talking about before with kind of over-promising on a, on a 3D printing technology of some of the same pitfalls that you can go through and, and that and saying, okay, one size fits all and this technology is going to replace injection molding or machining or whatever it may be. And we were, before the, the mics went hot, so to speak, we were, you were, we were talking about a couple examples of, of kind of examples in the industry that may have been not misleading, but understood or publicized and in, in different contexts. And one that I'd love if you expanded on a little bit was uh, about the hearing aids and, and how the, a lot of the, the, kind of principal story that you hear in the industry is that 3D printing is kind of the main manufacturing method for, for hearing aids, but there might be a little bit more to that story. Yeah. This, I'd like to answer that in two, two different answers, Mike. Uh, so related directly to what you're talking about, uh, I know for a fact, and I therefore strongly believe that for every story that we read or are told, there's a ton of detail underlying that story that if you don't understand it, or have an appreciation for what the rest of that story is, it can really lead you to uh, incorrect assumptions. And, the, and I'll talk to the hearing aid story on that, but also use the hearing aid story for another thing that's uh, I'm really passionate about is uh, seeking different goals for when you've got an additive project. But the, the first side of things is more to the story. Uh, with hearing aids, I don't know what the number is today, Mike, but I believe it's over 95% of all the shells for in-the-ear hearing aids are produced with additive manufacturing. And many people, if not most, would assume that with that penetration rate that it's a cost and time story, that additive is making the shell cheaper and that additive is making the shell faster. Uh, I can tell you from experience that 30 years ago, traditional methods for making hearing aid shells were faster and cheaper than they are today with additive. And I know that for a fact because the likes, of, I won't name names, but back in the early 90s, my service bureau was approached by some of these hearing aid manufacturers to figure out how they could use the technology. And when they shared what they were doing and what it cost and how much time, you know, I threw up my hands back then and said, we can't beat that. Uh, 
so there's more of the story. Now, related to seeking different goals, I think it's really unwise for anyone to enter into an evaluation of additive on an application basis or any other basis with a strong desire to reduce time and reduce cost on the, the unit level. So unit time and unit cost, because that's usually a losing proposition. It's the exception when additive for, for higher volumes, especially is a time savers and a cost redu- uh, reducer. But back to the hearing aid story. So if it was faster and cheaper 30 years ago than with additive, why in the heck are they doing it? Well, it's because they're going after a different benefit, a different win. And that's that the old way was very manual. And that very manual method meant that the technicians had to hand work the shells. And the number one reason someone is disappointed with a hearing aid or returns it is because of poor fit. And with this manual process, poor fit was more likely. And I believe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, the return rate on hearing aids was 40%. With the digital workflow of additive, reducing this human interpretation and, and manipulation of the shell, it's more likely to fit comfortably in the patient's ear. Therefore, return rates have plummeted. And last time I checked on that, it was like down to 10, maybe 15%. So it is a financial win and it's a time win, Mike, but it's all in terms of reducing scrap and rework in, you know, to satisfy the uh, returns that are coming in. So hearing aid companies are definitely profiting from additive, but it's because they're not uh, duplicating the manufacturing process, adding to cost. It's because they're not consuming some of their uh, production capacity to make reworked items. So you know, more parts flow through and they have higher profit on each part because the scrap rate is reduced. So, you know, that's kind of moral to the story and words of wisdom in looking at your applications. Try to find the bigger win, the different win than what you traditionally expect from the technologies you currently use. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, would you say for the kind of machine manufacturers, OEMs who are trying to get more penetration of their technology into the hands of users and different applications that are they projecting that story as well? Or is it still mostly time and money? No, they're they're still predict. Pardon me. I got tongue tied there. They're still projecting the time and money story. Uh, And there's practical reasons. You know, I, I dabble in marketing copy and have over the years, like writing case studies and from that experience, there's only so many words you can put in that story. So something's got to give. And telling the richer, deeper story oftentimes takes too many words. And then the writer or editor will default to, or the marketing person, a time and money equation. So I don't think it's out of intent. I think it's out of necessity or maybe even a bit of, I don't want to use the word, but I'm going to laziness, uh, a shorthand for why you should go for it. But I really think people have to look beyond time and money. You know, another thing, this, so that's on the vendor side of things, Mike. And then also, you know, the user side asking different questions or what can we change? What can we fix? What can we improve? But it, going, going with the flow of what you know to be true, 
has very real ramifications on the possibility of additive being a successful technology for the end user. And if you don't mind, I'd like to share a story from 2000. Of course. Related to automotive. So uh, we were a big service bureau. So I, at first service bureau, I then went to another service bureau, Accelerated Technologies, which was one of the biggest at the time. And we had an automotive manufacturer call up and they wanted uh, a bunch of parts or a single part, but big quantity. And it was so that they could truly roll out this new vehicle to dealer lots. They had, they had a supply chain problem. So tooling went bad or whatever. So they called and believe it or not, 20, so it had been 20 years ago. Uh, quality wise, we met the threshold and we were really excited to work with them. When we got to the final question, you know, trying to work up a quote for them. I asked, how many do you need? And the guy said, I need 5,000. And these were, I don't know, six, seven, eight inches long, four inches tall, three inches wide. And as soon as he said that, I said, I can't help you. And I wanted that work, but I said, I can't help you. And he's like, why? I said, well, you're not going to pay the amount of money it's going to take to make 5,000 pieces of that. And it's going to take me months and months and months to deliver to that order. So out of desperation, I said, and I'm surprised he stayed with me on the conversation. I asked him, why in the heck do you need 5,000 of these? And he stopped for a moment and he said, I'll get back to you. Three days later, he got back to me and I said, all right, so do you need 5,000? He said, nope. I said, how many do you need? He said, I need 200 this month, 200 next month, and then we'll play it by ear after that. I said, fine, we can work together. Then I turned around and asked him, I said, so why 5,000? And here's the kicker on this. They had always, in this situation for this kind of part, it was plastic, they had routinely ordered no fewer than 5,000 pieces because it was injection molded and somebody years before had done an economic order calculation on injection molding and come to the conclusion that it's stupid to buy any less than 5,000 pieces. You know, you can throw half of them away and still be good, but because of the cost basis, you know, setting up and tooling cost, uh, it didn't make any sense. So, that is a story that I like to tell because so many engineers, manufacturing professionals, et cetera, et cetera, enter into the conversation with the blinders on to what they've always done and fail to ask the question, is that what we really need? And this, Mike, this drives down to even something as simple as a surface finish or a required tolerance. You know, it's been on the print, you know, since we started making that kind of part. And we're just going to go with the plus or minus 1,000 that they've got specced out. But they've never really asked the question, do we still need that? So I really encourage anyone listening in, if you've got a project, to dig in and start by asking the question, what do we really need for success? And then entering into an additive conversation. I'm sorry for being long-winded on that one. It's, that story really uh, gets me going. Yeah, it's, it's a fun one to tell. Yeah, I think that is one of the biggest things in the industry that will eventually help kind of create new applications is, and also a big challenge in, in the sense that having whoever owns the part or owns the design to really think about the tech, not the application, why it's being used in such a way, what's the production volume, what are the tolerances. And I think 
I found in, in, in many cases that, um, you've just done it because that's the way we've always done it. And no one's asked any, any other questions. And maybe I don't have the, the clout or the experience to tell someone otherwise. Of right. Or, or the time, Mike, because, right. you know, what we're talking about here, I mean, someone's going to have to invest a boatload of time to figure out and qualify what do we really need? What can we change? I, you know, this goes to materials too. You know, we all know this. You know, anybody been around added for any time? Uh, somebody shows up on your doorstep and says, I want this part and I want it in, and they'll name a branded thermoplastic. And it's, you know that they don't want that thermoplastic. They want a few key properties that that thermoplastic offers. But since it's worked for the last five years for these kinds of parts, they just keep going with it and don't have the time or energy to sit down and say, what is it about that plastic that we really need? You know, what is the lower threshold on tensile strength and, and is impact strength important to us? You know, nailing it down to the two or three properties that are really key to success and then looking for solutions. Unless you do that, uh, your odds of success with additive really go down quite quickly. So shorthand is not a good thing to do with additive, uh, but it's a challenge. I, it, it requires somebody to rethink what they've been doing for decades and invest time in that, plus gaining enough knowledge of additive that they can connect the dots and ask the right questions. And honestly, Mike, that's a pretty big ask of people. For sure. Yeah. I mean, even on the adding the materials front, I mean, if you may want a, or you, if you want a material that you commonly use in injection molding because it's cheap, the moment you put it into an additive context, whether it's a powder and a filament, your material costs and your cost model is probably going to go haywire because you're going to be paying way more than what an injection molding pump is going to be. Absolutely. And so the way you've been thinking about solving problems before and cost are, completely different in some contexts with with additive so it's uh <laughs> that uh that knowledge gap to having enough knowledge about the potential 3d printing technologies and the nuances and keeping up with what's available plus that really important internal knowledge of your parts and your context and who the customer is and why they're asking for something is is vital for for success oh, absolutely um so switching gears a little bit, um, one of the things that I look forward to year after year is the the AMUG uh, conference and and the show, and I've really grown to like the, um, I guess you're almost like fireside chats, I would call them, but you kind of keynote interviews with some of the main. Oh, are you uh, talking about my specific? thing that i do okay I, I thought you were talking about amug in general but i'm sorry energy interrupted yeah yeah what, so, what do you what do you want to know what question do you have so i i'm curious with that i mean it's been um so for anyone who doesn't know i'll take a step back and and uh, just collect everyone that we i may have lost with my <laughs> circuitous questioning but um so the amug show every, every year um is the added manufacturer users group conference it brings together a number of industry veterans new companies and kind of the place to be i would say in in the spring for for additive and todd has been involved since since the beginning and every year he uh, i don't know how, how long this particular event has been going but there's a few keynotes throughout the the week and you've been kind of the mc and uh key interviewer for uh, a number of folks for the last few years. And I've found that 
part of the show kind of most interesting for me of, of where I learned the most of, of talking to people and, and hearing your questioning and getting perspectives of the history of the industry. And so as you've started to do that with uh, a number of, of people and um, I've learned certainly from, from those interviews, kind of what's the, what's something that has kind of changed better for, kind of for the better in the industry over the last 20, 30 years that you've been involved. So, but feeding off of these fireside chat conversations, you know, yeah. what I'm learning. Yeah. yeah. And just yeah. get, I mean, you get kind of a yearly check-in almost with so many different people and in, in the industry and probably more regular than that, but that's what, what we get to see on, on the outside. But what's, what's kind of the, your pulse on, on the space. And this might be a bad question. I mean, no, it's it's out, but no, no, no. You can keep it. It's a fair question. I just, I don't have a direct answer on that. Uh, let, let me back up. So what Mike is talking about is a mug hands out for the last six years, I believe an innovators award. And we invite that innovator on stage for a fireside chat. It's me chatting with them uh, on stage and, the reason we do that, Mike, is in the old days when we were a couple hundred people, 500 people, uh, attendees would be very likely to rub elbows with the likes of Scott Crump and Fried von Kron and uh, uh, Chuck Hull. And that's gone as we've you, – you, they're still open to talking with you, but it's less likely you're going to bump into them. So what we're trying to do is give people an opportunity to understand the person and their key philosophies of regarding additive. So, uh, so that's, that's the conversational tone. So I don't have any big takeaways on change from them, uh, but key things that have been mentioned over time by, by these individuals, you know, one that's cropped up more and more over the years is the need for collaboration and partnerships. You know, this is versus an additive industry where all the vendors want to be everything to, to everyone. So they wanted to control software and sell it. They wanted materials and on and on and on. And a realization that it's just too big of a task, too big of a project. So uh, the need for partnership. Uh, I also enjoy, you know, talking about adding the commentary, the color commentary to what we believe to be facts. I enjoy extracting out that color commentary from these leaders in industry so, you know, they're successful and they can claim success, but digging in and saying, why? What's that? How does that make you different? How does that make your company different? And even the motivating factors behind their involvement in additive or building their own businesses. So uh, it is informational. It's educational for people, but I can't directly answer your question. Sure. And I think the, the other thing, too is just in in terms of someone sitting in in the audience and is probably more of a compliment than anything is your ability to tease out that level of engagement with with the folks and and so for anyone who's on the fence about going to AMUG or or wanting to check some of that out I think that's a, a must must see during during the week and I think it brings me kind of to my next next question or, or line of, of thinking for, for today is 
certainly with the pandemic and with COVID, there's been a lot of people, a lot of companies in transition and um, either out of companies or temporarily furloughed and thinking about new industries and looking at um, where is their potential for translating their skills um, to a different space. So you've been in the additive world specifically for a number of years to and and seen a lot of changes and 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 the such but for someone that's kind of sitting at home listening and kind of on the fence and and looking at 3d printing and the additive industry as a potential career area or somewhere where they might want to kind of learn more about what advice do you give them and in terms of thinking about the industry, looking for opportunities? Oh, where to start, where to start. Uh, First thing is additive manufacturing has a big allure. It's fascinating. It's it's so cool. Uh, But a key thing to recognize is that it's still a job. It's still an industry like any other industry. Yeah, we've we've got breaking news and innovation, but don't go into it thinking that everything's going to change, and your world's going to be different, and you know it, that plays to companies or people that want to start businesses as entrepreneurs early on, and to some extent today, I feel that people look at additive manufacturing as an easy path to riches, and it's not. So go in with your eyes open. Uh, I'd also recommend being a specialist. So this is back to knowing it all. You can't. So uh, focus your attention, focus any research you're going to do, you know, to prepare for a job change and focus any, anything and everything on some form of specialization. So that can be a technology class. That could be an application that can be a specific industry. It could be a discipline like, you know, engineering or manufacturing, but uh, you you can't know it all. And you're going to drown in information if you try to know it all without being fully inserted. So don't expect um, riches and easy riches specialized. But the other thing is uh, this, uh, this actually ties back to our, previous conversation. So this innovator uh, award in the showcase where I interview people on stage in 2019, it was Gideon Levy, who's got 30 years in the industry. He's a technologist. Uh, He led early efforts, not early. He led efforts in coming up with new technology or processes for EDM. So he knows the traditional world. He knows technology. But one thing he said that really struck me and I want to pass on to anybody thinking about this industry is he felt that something holding additive back was that additive was kind of acting in its own lane. Like it it was its own separate entity while you've got this richness of experience from the traditional manufacturing world and traditional design. And it was his premise that, Additive needs to do a better job of folding in that knowledge base of from traditional and integrating that to come up with stronger solutions. So I tell you all that because I think there's a lot of opportunity for an individual to enter the additive marketplace anywhere along the spectrum of what additive touches from design out to logistics uh, without 
a deep experience based in additive. And this is playing to what Gideon said. So if you can bring to the table this richness of experience and information on traditional processes and add that to the conversation with additive, I think it goes a long way and could really set you apart from others. As long as the key things I, I recommend that companies look to when hiring for an additive spot with looking for this experience is as long as that individual is not, uh, their feet aren't casting concrete on status quo operations, meaning we, we will always do it this way because we always have. Instead, a personality where they want to grow, they want to do things differently, they're open to new ideas, and they're excited about innovation. So, Mike, I think people can come into the additive world by bringing their experience from gear making or sheet metal stamping or injection molding, bringing that in, but expressing this excitement, this enthusiasm, and this willingness to learn new things and do things differently. The challenge there is in an interview, I think most companies aren't looking for that. They haven't made this connection that that's a personality type that you want and you want that experience base. So I'd highly recommend that you polish your story for interview or when you're trying to get an interview to tell people why it's important to bring this uh, experiential baseline of information into the additive equation and why it's important to have somebody that is grounded in what works, but open to changing what works so it can adapt to additive. Wow, Mike, I apologize. That was a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, but that's great. And uh, we're getting towards the the end of the show here. And I want to kind of end with just this last question. So a lot of changes certainly happening this year. And what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year? Uh, you mentioned COVID. I think we're all tired of that. <laughs> next six months, I hope we see a break in it because it's – it's stalling activity quite a bit. Uh, but on that, I want to encourage people to not lose hope on new technology. It appears that we've really slowed down in the additive space with new stuff. You know, we see news of new stuff, but not nearly to the volume that we have in previous years. But that new stuff is still out there. The suppliers of that new stuff are just trying to figure out what venues or what mechanisms, what communication platforms will work well to introduce a new product and questioning uh, what timing would be suitable. You know, if I announce now and get interest, would it be true that people could act on that? Or is it going to have to wait until after COVID um, is addressed in a, in a way that makes us all feel comfortable to leave our homes. But uh, so we are still moving. The industry is still moving. Uh, I think the thing that excites me most is, uh, that we're seeing a lot more effort on developing the information stores, the information base that can be applied by companies to take the reins of this thing we call additive. Uh, so, you know, that's research to understand what are the mechanisms in the process that influence negative outcomes and how do we take control of that? And then communicating that information out to a wider audience instead of it, re, you know, remaining a, uh, a research paper that, most industrialists would not even get exposed to. So I, I really get excited. And this is going to be, it's going to take time. So I'm excited that we're doing more of that 
and it's coming about, but I'm really looking forward to, over the next couple of years to see more of it. And all of that is to help those that are trying to come to grips with additive. Should they, shouldn't, shouldn't they, how should they, uh, handing them a workbook, best practices, guidelines, to some extent to get them started. And cause right now, Mike, as you know, it's basically buy a machine, plug a machine in, then work to figure out how to implement, how to train it. And then all the mechanisms to make it work within your operation. You can find some information out there. Like if you go to a mug conference, but for the most part, it ends up being a burden that's shouldered by the individual company to figure this thing out. So I'm looking forward to a near term day where we have a lot richer set of information and experiences available to help companies accelerate their additive journey. Thank you, Todd. And we'll talk to you soon. Mike, my pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope everyone listening in got some value out of our, our dialogue. I'm certain they did. Thanks so much.